Thank you this morning for singing, church. What an appropriate song to sing today in light of today's passage in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you this morning to turn there to Colossians chapter 1. Um, While you're turning there, I want to again say greetings to our uh, friends that are watching us on YouTube Live. Just about every week I have a conversation with someone who who talks about watching us online. Many of our church family are still joining us online every single week. But um, one, of the, one of the things that this coronavirus and, and quarantining and, and YouTube live streaming has brought about is a reconnection with a lot of people uh, who are friends of mine who join in because of the, the links that we put up on Facebook. So... Uh, Talking this week to a longtime friend of mine named Bobby and Lillian Culpepper, uh, who are living now in Mobile, Alabama, and are probably watching us this morning. Bobby said, every Sunday we, they, we do our church, and then we watch you, and so that's pretty cool. And so I love you guys, Bobby and Lillian. Thank you all for joining us if you're watching us this morning. I also want to say a word of gratitude to, our, to those who've been kind of serving for the last few months in our, in our welcome team when we were preparing to bring worship services back on on campus, we were trying to figure out how to navigate through that in a way that still allowed us to get people in the building as safely as possible to try to abide by CDC guidelines and and to get people in and out of the building. Um, And we knew that what we had been doing previously was probably not going to work, and so we made an appeal to the church family and we had many people that said, I'll be glad to help out. I'm going to be back there first day. And some of those people, we just we don't call them ushers. We call them the welcome team because they, they, they serve in many different roles, whether that's standing at the door and opening the door for people so that we don't have a lot of different people touching handles or, or helping people to get in the building and telling them which row to sit on, whether it's a row with a sticker or not. And some of them have been serving every single Sunday since we started. And um, so as we get ready to bring more activities back on campus, which we hope to be able to do by the first week of October, um, we're going to need more and more people to kind of help us serve in that welcome team. We have some people uh, that uh, have had to step aside for a little while or they're out because they're, they're venturing out to visit family a little bit more. And so we invite you to consider being a part of that welcome team and helping us out, especially when we end up doing Sunday schools and we're probably going to have to stagger Sunday schools in these two different times, and so some of our people will be here for one service, but will be going to Sunday school. We're going to need some more people that will help us, and we'll be given another opportunity for you to, to help join that welcome team and have a little meeting to uh, get everybody up to speed here very soon, but if you would uh, pray over that and be willing to, uh, to join us in helping us as we greet people, um, we would appreciate that. <clears throat> well, the song that we sang about uh, it is not I, but it is Christ in me is, as I said, very appropriate for the passage that we're going to be looking at today in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. In this passage, Paul makes a statement to the, to the Christians there in the church at Colossae about their specific experience of salvation that was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking primarily today at verses 21 through 23, but we cannot divorce these verses from their greater context in the book because what Paul is talking about personally 
in verses 21 through 23 flow out of verses 15 through 20, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Uh, Those verses were a powerful statement by the Apostle Paul about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Paul says that Jesus is to be preeminent. The word preeminent means supreme, and thus the reason why we are calling this sermon series in Colossians, Christ over all. Jesus is supreme and preeminent because of who He is and what He has accomplished. And the message of who Jesus is and the message of what Jesus has accomplished is what we call the gospel. And today we're going to be talking about the critical importance of staying grounded in the gospel. And I would remind you that when we started this letter, I told you that Paul is addressing in the church a creeping false teaching that has begun begun to infiltrate the church that has the potential to undermine the Christians in Colossae and their trust in the gospel and in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save them. Paul's main idea throughout this letter is that the supremacy of Jesus Christ is most visibly demonstrated in the redemptive work that he has accomplished in salvation. And so because of what Jesus has done to save and redeem us, Jesus is overall and Jesus is better because only Jesus can save us from our desperate sinful condition. And these verses in Colossians chapter 1 that we are about to read make one truth abundantly clear, and that is that Jesus Christ is the central figure in each and every conversion story. When you think about your conversion, those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, when you think about what happened when you were saved, when you, when you trusted Christ for salvation, it's very easy to remember, maybe for many of us, where we were or what steps we took or, or who it was that talked to us about the Lord. But we need to remember that salvation is not about what you and I have done. It's not about what religious hoops we have jumped through in order to make ourselves more acceptable to the Lord. Salvation is about what Jesus has done for you because you were not able to save yourself. And so in today's text, we're going to see the glory of the gospel by seeing how it works practically in the lives of us as believers. And Paul is going to be countering the tendency of us as Christians towards what I call gospel amnesia. It's the tendency we have to to believe the gospel fundamentally, to to have trusted in the message of Christ at some point in life, but, but then to forget about it in a practical, everyday experience of our lives. And he's going to do so by reminding us of the glorious work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Paul is going to employ a very favorite and familiar pattern that he uses in several of his letters in the Bible. And this pattern is this idea of who you were, but God has, now you are. Who you were, but God has, now you are. This is the glorious story of the gospel. The gospel is who we were apart from Christ in our desperate condition. What God has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ and now who we are in light of Christ's work. As I said, it's a familiar pattern found throughout all of scriptures. Paul employs it in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, 
to the Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in the way we once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love which He loved us, has saved us, and now we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21-23, through 23, He employs the same pattern, and in doing so, He gives us three empowering truths about the glory of the gospel in the lives of believers. And every disciple of Jesus Christ has these same three elements in his or her story. And I want you to think about your story today as we read these verses. I want you to think about your story of who you were, what God has done, and now who you are in light of that. And so with that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. <clears throat> Paul says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You can see the pattern there. Who you were, once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What has God done? He has reconciled us in the body of His flesh. And in doing so, He has done so now to present you holy and blameless. Three glorious truths <clears throat> about the glory of the gospel in our lives. And the first of those truths is this, that we see the desperately sinful plight of mankind. Paul demonstrates for us at the opening verse the, the, the sinful condition and plight of all who are apart from Christ. We see that in, he writes in verse 21, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. As Paul is going to speak about the glory of the gospel in a practical way, he's, he's talked about how Jesus in His supremacy has reconciled all things unto Himself. He talks about that in, in verses 18, 19, and 20. But now He's going to talk about it in a personal, practical way in your life and in my life. And in order to really help us to understand the glory of the gospel, He has to do so by reminding them and us of our pre-converted state of lostness and separation from God. He takes us back to a reminder of our past condition before we were saved. And this is because remembering who we were before we met Christ is extremely vital to our understanding and application of the gospel each and every day. Now, when I talk about going back and remembering what you were before God saved you, we don't go back and remember our past life because of some form of regret or some form of self-flogging. When, when God is bringing back to remembrance what our life was like before Christ, it's not to bring guilt and shame and condemnation on us. It's not for us to, to feel regret for the things that we've done. As a matter of fact, the glorious truth of the gospel in Romans 8.1 is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That guilt and shame and condemnation have been removed. 
The point of remembering our previous state of lostness is not to glory in the bad things that we did or to beat ourselves up with guilt and shame. The point of remembering is so that we can increase our gratitude and the glory that we give God for what He has saved us from. Throughout Paul's writings, he is constantly reminding us as Christians of the desperate, sinful plight of mankind apart from Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, Paul describes lostness as spiritual blindness. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, that I referenced a second ago, Paul calls lostness spiritual deadness. It means to, it's to be dead in our trespasses and our sins. In Romans 5, 10, he, can, he describes spiritual lostness as being spiritual enemies of God. It's being enemy combatants against Him. And I think one of the reasons why Paul emphasizes the past condition of believers is because personally he never forgot the amazing grace of God that saved him in his previous life as Saul the Pharisee. He remembers what it was like to be religiously zealous but spiritually lost and blind. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, writing to Timothy, he says, Formerly, thinking again about what his life was like before Christ, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul, Paul was a man who we would consider to be probably one of the top five heroes of the Bible. He's a man who planted dozens of churches, wrote 13 letters in the Bible, um, discipled thousands of people, a man whose words still ring in churches every single week. And we would say Paul was probably one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. And Paul, near the end of his life, said, no, I'm one of the greatest sinners who ever lived. He never forgot what it was like to be lost. And you and I need to remember and understand what lostness feels like and how lost people operate in order to understand the desperate situation that many people around us are going through and why we need to proclaim the gospel. For Paul, proclaiming the gospel was the driving force of his life. It was the reason for his existence. And so he tells us the desperately sinful plight of mankind, and he specifically describes it in three ways in this passage. First of all, he tells us that all people have been alienated from God. He says, you once were alienated. The, the word alienate, alienated speaks of our separation from God. It's, it's an estrangement from our Heavenly Father. And the Bible tells us that God created this world to reflect His glory and that in that creation, He created mankind to live in relational fellowship with Him. The purpose of our lives is to glorify God by living as image bearers in a unique relationship with Him. The Bible tells us in Genesis that our first spiritual parents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed perfect, intimate fellowship with God, walking with Him daily, conversing with Him. Can you imagine what that was like to, to be able to, to physically see God and to, and to talk with Him? However, the Bible tells us that when they sinned by taking of the, of the fruit that was forbidden to them, that their sin immediately created a relational distance between them 
and God. And where they once knew intimacy with God, now they felt shame. Where they once enjoyed God's continual presence in Eden, now they were cast out and there was a relational divide between them and God. The same thing happens to you and me in our lives when we pursue sin. Sin promises fulfillment and happiness, but the reality is it creates distance and estrangement between us and God. Sin alienates us from our Heavenly Father. It brings a constant feeling that there is a critical relational void in our life that is missing and incomplete. I remember being a young man who attended a a church pretty much once a month, if not more than that, for most of my life. Grew up in in a Baptist church very similar to this. And yet I was lost until I was 19 years old. And I can remember going to church and singing the songs out of the hymnal and listening to God's Word being preached, feeling convicted because something wasn't right in my life, and yet I could sit there in my bed at night and felt like something was missing, that I was incomplete, that there was, there was something missing in my life, and what I did not know at the time is what was missing was the relationship with God for which I was created. Paul says all lost people have been alienated from God. But then the next two characteristics flow out of that alienation. He says, not only are we alienated from God, but their minds are hostile towards God. They're hostile in mind. In other words, Paul says that the alienation that we feel with God doesn't just create some sort of passive distance, but it instead creates an active hostility towards God. It means that lost people live... with conscious antagonism towards the one true God. They are in open rebellion towards God in their thinking. Now some people think that it is a very harsh idea to say that lost people have minds which hate God or live in hostility towards Him. We live in a world where many people talk about loving God and where many people give general benevolence towards a heavenly deity. They talk about the man upstairs. But the truth is that the God that they love is not the God of the Bible. It's the God of their own thinking. Because the Bible tells us that lost people live in active hostility towards God and active rebellion towards His laws. Lost people do not want a God whose laws place limit on their free choices. And so they live with hostile minds. Romans 1.8 says that because the lost do not see fit to acknowledge Him, God gives them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And you say, well, preacher, how do we, how do we understand people being hostile in mind? Well, we see this active hostility in our culture when we see people who claim to believe in God but openly celebrate the right to end human life in the womb or angrily protest the idea that God in heaven has declared that marriage is between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant. And they are hostile towards those ideas because they're hostile towards God. And thirdly, their choices are evil and wicked. Their choices are evil and wicked. The natural result of a depraved mind is evil and wicked choices. A mind that is hostile towards Him cannot pursue that which is good and right on a consistent basis. 
And it's not that every choice that lost people make is evil. And it's not that lost people cannot make good and benevolent choices that benefit others in life. We see people who don't have Christ who do many good and benevolent things, many charitable things to better our world. The problem is that the decision-making center of their hearts is on practicing evil. Practicing what God has decreed is not good. And even when lost people do benevolent and charitable things, their motives are often done to draw attention to themselves and to seek personal glory. Paul goes to great care in verse 21 to remind us that lostness is a desperately hopeless state of alienation, hostility, and evil and wicked choices. And that's why we need to remember our desperately sinful plight apart from Christ. But Paul doesn't end there. He he continues by describing for us the glorious saving work of Christ. The glorious saving work of Christ. It would be really appropriate in the text, even though it's not there, for Paul to insert one of those but God moments in verse 22 because describing us as lost people who are alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds, he says, but now, basically, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul sets up the contrast between our desperate state without Jesus to be a backdrop to demonstrate the glorious work of Jesus that was accomplished to save us. Paul's main thought in this letter is to remind Christians of the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, that because Jesus is supreme, He is better, better than empty human philosophy, better than empty personal religious practices. And Paul makes four statements in chapter 1 about the glorious saving work of Jesus. And we looked at a couple of these last week, but I want to return to them as a reminder. When we see the glorious saving work of Christ, when we think of our story as what I once was, but God has, he gives us four truths about what Jesus has done for us in chapter 1. The first truth he gives us is that he has delivered us from the power of the enemy. He has delivered us from the power of the enemy. We see this when we go back a few verses to where we ended last week in verse 13 when he said he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What Paul is talking about here is that our alienation from God because of our sin has made us spiritual captives to the domain of darkness that we were hostages to sin and that we lived under the dominion of the prince of darkness, that we were captive to our sinful choices and evil deeds, that we pursued sin because it was the natural gravitational pull of our heart and that Satan himself was living in control of our lives. But God sent his son, Jesus, on a rescue op to invade enemy territory to defeat the enemy and to deliver us from spiritual captivity. He has delivered us from the power of the enemy. But secondly, we saw last week, he has forgiven our spiritual debt. He's forgiven our spiritual debt. Verse 14, he says, we have in Jesus redemption, the forgiveness 
of sins. What does forgiveness mean? Well, we talked last week about the idea of redemption, and I said to you that redemption means to buy back from enslavement by the payment of a price. When the Bible speaks of redeeming something, it means that something was held in, in, in captivity or someone was held in enslavement and that they were bought with a price that freed them from that enslavement. That's what redemption means. And so in our lives, our sinful pursuits have built up a massive spiritual indebtedness in our lives. Every time we sin, sin comes at a cost. And every time we pursue sin, that cost increases so that there's a spiritual indebtedness between us and God. And that indebtedness makes us slaves to sin and its power. But the Bible tells us that Jesus redeems us by purchasing us. He pays the price for our sin debt and He frees us from our enslavement. That's why it says, in Him we have redemption. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 6.20 when he says that you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. In Colossians 2.14, which we'll read in a few weeks, Paul will write that Christ has canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to a cross. Jesus paid the price of our debt and He has forgiven our spiritual indebtedness. But thirdly, He has reconciled our estrangement from God. He has reconciled our estrangement from God. What he says in verse 22, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. In verse 20, Paul spoke about the universal reconciliation of the cross when he said that, that Jesus had reconciled all things by way of his cross. And in that, he's talking about a general understanding that that Jesus' death on the cross doesn't just save us personally, but Jesus' death on the cross reconciles and fixes all the things that our sin has broken in this world, that there's coming a future perfect restoration of all things the way that God intended. But he moves in verse 20 from the universal to the personal when he says that Jesus' death on the cross repaired our spiritual and personal estrangement from our Creator. He has reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death. But it doesn't fix our separation from God until we activate that reconciliation by personal faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not enough to intellectually know that Jesus died on the cross to forgive sinners. It's not enough to know factually that Jesus was a real person who lived, who was who was an innocent man who was condemned and put on a cross and that God put him there on the cross to save us from our sins. It's not enough just to know that in your head and to know those factually. Those also must be personally activated in trust in what he has done. Having a general understanding of what Jesus did on the cross is not enough to save you. You must have personal application of that in your life. And then and only then will your faith in Christ reconcile your personal estrangement from your heavenly 
Creator. I know people who have jumped through all the right religious hoops, who've, who've been baptized, who've joined a church, who've prayed the magic prayer that they thought would save them, and yet when you talk to them, they still feel this estrangement and distance from God because what they did was go through religious motions, but they never really truly trusted in Christ. When we place our faith in Him, He reconciles our estrangement, but then... Fourthly, He has transformed our spiritual condition. Look at the spiritual transformation that is accomplished in the second part of verse 22 when it says that Jesus has brought us from a state of alienation to a state where we are called holy, blameless, and above reproach. Jesus takes that which is unholy and by the power of His blood, He makes it holy. And where once you and I stood before the Lord, fully guilty of our sin, now Jesus has made us to stand before the Lord blameless. Paul says that Jesus did all these things in order to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach. Jesus wants to personally transform our lives and totally change our state of being. This idea of presentation, that it, to present us, is borrowed from the Old Testament idea of the presenting of the sacrifice to the priests for approval. In Old Testament times, people were required to bring a sacrifice for their sins and the law required that that sacrifice must be without spot or blemish. That's what the word holy in the Old Testament meant. It was to be a, a, a sacrifice that didn't have any external blemishes on it. And in order for that sacrifice to be given, the priest had to inspect it. And so the, the people had to present that, that lamb or that sacrifice to the priest. And it had to meet the priest's approval. This is the idea that Paul is talking about, that one day there's going to be a presentation. There's going to be a future event where we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. And when we do so, we are to be spotless and without blemish. And we are presented for inspection. And when we are presented to Him, it's not about the perfections of our choices. It's about the perfections of Christ that were won for us and given to us. The glory of the gospel in the lives of Christians is demonstrated by the sinful plight of all mankind Alien, alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds, set against the glorious, transforming, saving work of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us to deliver us from the domain of darkness, to forgive our spiritual debt, to reconcile our estrangement, and to transform us in our spiritual condition. And because of this, the glory of the gospel is the only grounds that we have for hope in this world. So that brings us to the third point, and that is the only confident hope of the Christian. In verse 23, Paul adds a conditional phrase. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now this phrase sometimes confuses people and presents to some people the idea that some Christians will not continue in the faith and potentially the idea that you could lose your salvation. Contextually, we need to understand that Paul's point here is that he's reminding us of a future glorious event and of the prospect of standing before the Lord Jesus as holy, blameless, and without reproach. 
And he says that if we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus, holy, blameless, and without reproach, that is conditional upon our staying firmly grounded in the Christian faith. The phrase, if indeed, does not present the idea of doubting whether or not we will be saved. The idea of if indeed does not present to us a spiritual loophole by which someone can lose their salvation. In the Greek text, the Greek construction actually expresses confidence that this will happen. It's not Paul saying, one day you will be there if you just keep on. What he's saying is a phrase of of confidence. It almost reads, if you stand firm in the faith, and I am sure that you will. That's what Paul is saying. He said He saves us to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach if we continue and we can continue, not because of the perfections of our faith, but because of the perfections of Christ which has saved us. He has confidence in the power of Christ to keep those who belong to Him true to the end. But I think it's important that we understand this this condition because the reality of seeing people turn away from faith in Christ and falling away from Christ's body, the church, is a continually discouraging reality that we have to deal with. Over the last couple of decades, we have seen a gradual decline in churches. We've seen a gradual purging of the church as more and more people have walked away from the faith. I personally know, after doing 15 years of youth ministry in the local church, I can look back and see students who, who I talked to about their faith in Christ, who I remember the day that they expressed their need for salvation, who now have nothing to do with the church, and many of them have nothing to do with Christ on an everyday basis. And it's an extremely discouraging reality. But I believe the primary reason that we are seeing this decline and we are seeing this purge is because the Lord Jesus is purging His church of nominal Christianity. He is blowing away those who have been in our midst who have really never trusted in the gospel to begin with to save them. And I believe the primary reason for this is because we have spent generations after generations building churches and the Christian message on something other than the gospel. In our day and time, now, the tendency is to build the church on things such as political action, social justice, or personal affluence. Just this week, I was struck, as I was preparing for this message, by a Twitter thread by a pastor in Tallahassee, Florida, called Dean and Sarah. Dean is the faithful pastor of a gospel-centered church there in Tallahassee. He's the author of a book called The Unsaved Christian. And he was reflecting in light of kind of the cultural moment that we are in as we enter into the final stages of the 2020 election and the kind of the chaos that we've seen in our, in our culture over the last several months. I want to read for you what Dean said because I think it speaks to this idea of continuing in the faith and why it's important that we stay focused on the gospel as believers and as a church. It's a long thread, but let me read for you the gist of it. Dean said, I know it's happening already, but you're going to see people leave their churches over political differences. 
Not just because of the pastor, but also because of friends. The church isn't woke enough. The church is too woke. People in the church don't get it, etc., etc. It's not exaggerating when it is claimed that basically politics, what he's referring to here, it's not exaggerating when it's claimed to be a religion. You're going to see right-wing folks leave their gospel-centered churches for more of a God and country church. A church who talks about riots more than race, where everything is about holding up our values. A red meat, Fox News kind of church. You're going to see progressives leave gospel-centered churches to go to places that talk about racial justice every week and the pastor tweets anti-Trump rhetoric regularly. One church is gospel light, America strong. The gospel is the last two minutes of a sermon to set up a required invitation. The other, the gospel is merely social. Everything is about shared experiences, being mad about religion that your parents raised them in and what's wrong with the church. And then he says, choose gospel centrality. It will make you uncomfortable in all the good ways. It will stretch your views about everything political and identity. For gospel-centered churches, it won't be enough in the eyes of our 2020 world, but stay the course You are the hope of the world. And then he said, the church is not going to divide over theology or the Bible, but American politics and secondary identities. And for this, we should grieve. I think Dean is right. I know that this is happening internally within churches. I know it's happening among believers that we are seeing people who claim to believe the same gospel message who are dividing in the church, not over matters of what the Bible says, not over matters of theology, but over matters over who needs to be in the White House or what is social justice. And I thought about when I read that tweet, I thought about 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, where Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech were, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. My goal as a pastor is each week as I preach, as I lead, as I pray in this church, is that I would know nothing among you as the people of God except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because at the end of the day, I don't want your faith to rest on anything other than the power of God. And what Dean and Sarah is talking about is the tendency we have in the church to substitute different messages for the gospel to make up the core of Christianity, whether that's the message of political action or social justice. And so with that in mind... Let me give you three challenges to remind us of the gospel as our confident hope. And the first challenge is, may we continue to trust in the gospel's message. May we continue to trust in the gospel's message. As Paul says, may we continue in the faith. May we continue to believe that the gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God into salvation for all who would believe. May we trust that the gospel rightly held and rightly believed will make us to be a people who both care for righteousness in our society and also advocate for justice where we see 
injustice. We don't have to choose the gospel or justice. We don't have to choose the gospel or politics. We choose the gospel and we let the gospel influence our politics and justice. May we not refashion the central message of the church to be political advocates or social justice advocates as our personal identity. May our identity as a church always be, I once was, but God did, now I am. May we continue to trust the gospel's message. May we stand firm under the gospel's power. Paul says not only may we continue in the faith, but let's be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard. We need to remember that only the gospel has the power to transform individuals and society. People may not like and they do not want to hear a message from us about personal repentance from sin and trust and faith in Christ to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. But the reality is that we cannot have a truly righteous society apart from the message of the gospel. We cannot make people righteous through the passing of better laws or the power of political action. Laws cannot change the human heart, only the gospel can. Likewise, we cannot have true justice in this world apart from the gospel and the message of repentance and faith. And this is because God is the only being in the universe who is truly and perfectly just. And those who advocate for justice are limited in their own personal application of it many times. Some will fight for justice in the area of racial equality while ignoring the injustice of abortion or human trafficking. Some will cry loudly for justice in society while shouting down their enemies in a, in a sad display of injustice. And we must remember that justice ultimately demands that our sinful choices cannot be overlooked, but they must be paid and atoned for. And that's why Jesus bore God's wrath for us and accomplished our salvation while satisfying the justice of God. May we remember that true, perfect, and final justice will never happen in our world until Jesus is king over all. And so let us advocate for justice by standing firm under the power of the gospel. May we continue to trust the gospel's message. May we stand firm under the gospel's power and may we proclaim the gospel to all people. May we proclaim this message to all people. If we believe and trust in its message and we, we stand firm that it is the only power of salvation to everyone who believes, then may we do everything we can to take this all-powerful, life-transforming gospel into all the world. Paul says this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation and it was the reason why he was a minister. By saying that the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation, Paul does not mean that every individual has heard the message. We know that there are 7 billion people currently occupying our planet and the vast majority of them have never heard the gospel. What Paul is saying is that creation itself has already declared Jesus Christ to be Lord by the power of His resurrection. And because of this, Paul's driving force in life was to proclaim the gospel to all the world. He wanted to make sure that every person had the chance to hear the message, the one and only message that could change their eternal destiny. 
I think Paul's passion came from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 that said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So may the driving passion of Christ and the passion of the Apostle Paul be the passion of us as God's people. May we continue to trust in the gospel message and stand firm under the gospel's power. And may we do everything we can to proclaim this gospel to all peoples. May it be our full and final hope. I love what Paul is saying here because we go back to what we said before. The gospel in our lives is simply this. The gospel is our story. It's a story of who we were, but God has, now I am. Who I was, apart from God, alienated, hostile, enemy of God, pursuing evil deeds, but God in Jesus has done everything possible for me to be saved, forgiven, delivered, And now I am holy, blameless, above reproach, ready to be presented one day to my Lord and Savior. May we stand firm in the gospel. May we remember the power of that story. And may we remember that God did not give you a redemption story just for you. If you've been saved, if you can today sit down with me and declare... What I was, but God has, now I am. And you can tell me how God has saved you. I would tell you that if God has given you a redemption story, He has also given you an audience to share it with. May we not keep that message to ourselves. And finally, if you don't have a story, if your story isn't what I was, but God has, now I am, your story is just what I am and you've never had that but God moment, you've never had that transformation, you've never had that moment in life where God totally, completely changed you from being a sinner in pursuit of the sin of your heart to being a person who's been transformed and redeemed, then your redemption story is incomplete. But the good news is that God is the one who loves to write the end of our stories. The good news is that God always has the perfect ending to our story. And whether you're in this room today or whether you're watching online, I would invite you to trust in Christ and allow Christ to finish the story of your life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And Before we leave today, we just want to offer an opportunity, an invitation to receive the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and your story is incomplete, you don't have that but God moment in your life. You don't don't have that moment where you can look back on and you can remember that in your lost and hopeless state, you heard the good news of what Jesus had done to save you. You heard the good news that, that all of the things that you had done in your life could be forgiven and could be redeemed and you could be put back in a right relationship with God and by faith you trusted in that. If you've if you've never truly done that. We want to give you the opportunity to do that today. Whether you're sitting in a seat this morning, whether you're watching online, if, if you would like to have that but God moment, if you would like to, to experience the life-transforming power of the gospel, I want to invite you to trust Jesus today. You can do so by just saying, God, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. And I admit to you that I have done many things to 
spurn you and to spurn your word. But today I want to trust in you by faith. I accept what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. I, I trust in that and I ask you to, to enter my life to forgive me of my sin, to change me and make me into a new person. And so by faith I trust in you and I repent of my sins. If you're here today and you need to pray that prayer or you just prayed it as I was, as I was telling you that, we want to talk to you about that. And so if you're here in the audience today, before you leave, you can talk to me or one of our staff members about the Lord. We'll be glad to sit down and walk with you and pray with you through that. If you're watching online and you would like to talk to somebody about that, my phone number and email address are on the screen there. You can call or text me. Whatever it is, don't leave today until you know that you have had that but God moment. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the glory of the gospel. May we stay grounded in it as your people. May it be our firm, confident hope in our life. And may we believe the gospel's message. May we stand firm under the gospel's power. And may we proclaim the gospel to all people. May we remember that if you've given us a story, you've given us a story to share. So help us to see the audience that you've given us and help us to look for those moments to share our story. And for those who are watching today who need to trust you, I pray, God, you would give them the faith to believe and the courage to respond. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.